Welcome to Mission 150, the podcast that tells stories from 150 years of Seventh-day Adventist mission to the world. To find out more about the mission of the Adventist Church, you can go to AdventistMission.org. That's AdventistMission.org. We're so glad that you've joined us on Mission 150. I'm David Trim. And I'm Sam Nevis. We have a gift and a, a tremendous treat for you today because Amy Whitsett is with us. She is the Associate Director in the Institute of World Mission. So the Institute of World Mission trains missionaries to go all over the world. That's right. And what exactly do you do in the, there in, in terms of organizing? Do you have a particular area that you help with or is it just the overall thing? I do. I'm involved in the overall thing, but my specific area is all of our online resources. So managing our website, we also have online courses for missionaries and for student missionaries that we manage and just keeping those up and running and producing more content. Um, I'm also involved in leading research, so mission research and any writing that we do for publications. And then, of course, <clears throat> I help to teach in the, the mission institutes that we hold that are the actual three-week trainings for missionaries. My family went to Mission Institute and it absolutely transformed our lives. So I love what you do. And we'll talk more about the Institute of World Mission as we draw to an end, but let's find out a bit first a bit more about Amy. Mm -hmm. Amy, you served as a cross-country missionary in the Lao Democratic People's Republic, better known to some of our viewers and listeners as Laos, and you also served as a cross-cultural missionary in Thailand. Did you have any family connection to mission or was there something else that made you and your husband, Greg, decide to volunteer as missionaries? I didn't have any direct connection myself, except that my mother was a short-term missionary for nine months when she was in college. She was a student missionary? She was a student missionary in Chiapas, Mexico, um, as a missionary student nurse and mm. had, you know, all kinds of stories that she can tell. But, you know, growing up, reading all the mission stories, mm. I felt as a young child that God wanted me to be a medical missionary. So I wanted to be a doctor. Um, <clears throat> probably from the age of five or six years old, I knew I was supposed to be a foreign missionary and ended up going into nursing. Um, kind of a long story. I wanted to skip high school because I thought high school was just a holding pattern, <laughs> you know, until you know what you want to do. Well, I knew what I wanted to do, so can I skip high school? And when I discovered I can't, I said, well, you know, that's four more years, so I'll just take away four, year, four years from my, you know, becoming a physician and just become a nurse instead. So I did that. Um, but then um, in school, in college, I was involved in literature evangelism. Mm. And I realized I'm doing mission work in my own country. And I felt that God was calling me to that. That's where I met my husband. We got married. Um, long story short, we went to seminary and I was struggling. You know, I'm going to be a pastor's wife, but in my mind, the typical pastor's wife played the piano, printed mm. the bulletin, organized potluck. And I thought, that's great and that's fine, but I want to be involved in ministry too. And so we were actively praying, what was my role going to be? How are we going to be a team in ministry? Um, and that's when we felt the call together to foreign missions. And you went to Asia. We did. You went to Laos with a supporting ministry yeah. of the Adventist Church. Yeah. That's very far away. It is. It, it, it's 12 or 13 hours away, depending on the, the, um, you know, the time of year from home. David and I often talk about missionaries that were sent in the 1800s and early 1900s. 
the time to get there was measured in months back then. <laughs> so, so now with an airplane, 13 hours, I imagine what it would have been to right, go right. around but, at that time. But as we know that, you know, then you've got all the time in airports and changing planes and it can easily spread out to being 24 hours. If easily. You yeah. Yeah, yeah. More. yeah. But the time zone difference, you know, Yes. 11, 12 hours of time zone. And so you call in the morning, you call in the evening. But, you know, I, I often thought about those early missionaries, too, and realized how easy we had it because we could get there quickly. If there was an emergency, we could technically fly home or they could right. come to us. And, you know, we had email. This yes. Was before, this was before FaceTime. And, you know, our Internet was extremely cost prohibitive, but we still had it. It wasn't waiting for months for a letter to come and then months for the letter to go back. So right. in many ways, we were very, very blessed. And you were conscious of that for have, from having read the mission stories that helped inspire you in the first place. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You know, some of those missionaries went with, with a coffin because they expected that they would die in the mission field. That's right. You know. Hmm. And we... Are in, we try to tell the stories today. We are trying to be the digital equivalent of those mission books that used, the church used to print and doesn't print so much anymore because the stories do have a power to inspire as your life reveals. Amy, you spent 10 years in Vientiane, the capital of the Lao Democratic, Lao Democratic People's Republic. What was it like the first week, the first month, the first year? We, we actually launched to Thailand, a, a city in northern Thailand, where there was another missionary from this organization who was going to help us kind of adjust because to get into Laos, it's a, it's a closed country. You know, they don't, we couldn't get a missionary visa. Mm -hmm. And so we, we decided with the organization that it would be best to go to Thailand. And then Greg would make a trip into Laos to see if he could get a visa and get a job teaching English. And you knew all this in advance, I guess. We knew it in <clears throat> advance. Yeah. Thankfully. But while he was in, that, that first month in Thailand, he got very sick um, and nearly died. He was in ICU for about a Goodness. week. Um, it ended up being a mix of things, including dengue fever, which causes um, one of the long-term effects can be depression. And he dealt with some depression for quite a while the first time, you know, the first probably six months that we were there. And so not only did we have the transition of leaving our home and going to a new home, but then we had this added... Um, component of the depression from being so sick. And I remember we were talking together and said, how can a student missionary make it for a year? And here with this organization, we had essentially committed for a lifetime. You know, they said 10 to 12 years, but however long it takes to plant a church. And so we're thinking, yeah. how, how can we get out of this <laughs> honorably? You know, because it was just, it was extremely overwhelming. So you questioned your vocation. We did. We, we questioned it, but at the same time, we knew that God had called us. And ironically, we had prayed before we, before we launched, before we went and said, you know, what are we going to do if, if one of our children dies? Mm. You know, what, what would our response be? Never thinking, what would we do if one of us died? Um, and when he was, when Greg was very sick, I knew I was still called to mission. And I don't remember saying it, but the missionary we were with told me later, she said, you came to me and said, if something happens to Greg, I will go back to the States and raise my kids. But when they're old enough, we will come back because I'm called. Mm. We see this and we've yes. talked about this yeah. so many times. Uh, one, I thought that by having missionaries that are still alive, that because most of the stories that we talk or have talked in the last few episodes, within months, many of them contracted a 
what is it they call it? A, a, a tropical fever? illness, fever. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, some kind of fever. They didn't even know exactly what it was. Right. And then they died within sometimes weeks, sometimes months of being there. Yeah. And so Greg also became quite ill within a few months very, of very arrival. Very, very sick, yeah. The, Just within a few months. In the first month. In the first month. The first month. So the first week he was up in the mountains preparing for a baptism and cut his foot. And that's how one of the infections uh. started. And then the second week he was in Laos um, and picked up amoebic dysentery. Oh, no. And then when he came back the third week, he was in ICU. And then the fourth week, out of ICU, kind of getting his land legs back, and then we moved into Laos because he was able to get a job. He was able to get a yep. visa. We moved on a Sunday, and on Monday morning, he was in the classroom teaching even advanced was, English grammar. Even though he was still so sick. Even though he was sick. You know, Sam, if Greg and Amy had gone 100 years ago, Greg would have been one of the people we talked about. Who wouldn't have made it? Who yes, wouldn't have made it? It's only because you have that modern medical care that he that there was an ICU for him to go into. Yeah. So yes. you were experiencing, you must have been experiencing culture shock because it's very different in Asia. Yes. At the same time that Greg is going through illness and a depression as a consequence of the illness. But did you know that at the time? Or did you think it was just a culture shock that was leading to the depression and so on? Or was that all that mix? How was that Yeah, I, I didn't know about the depression being a, a long-term effect of dengue fever. Um, knowing that after, it helps explain and, and provide mm. some answers. But, but at the time? No, we just thought, well, this is just what mission life is about. This right. is what the transition is. This is what culture shock is. So, you know, grin and bear it and grit your teeth through it once you get through it, because mm. I think the first year is the hardest because everything is new. Um, I remember walking into a restroom and seeing a squat pot, you know, no place to sit, you just squat. And I thought, I don't even know how to perform the basic functions of life right in this culture. And that, that made me feel so little, mm. so small. And I thought, how in the world are we gonna survive? And we quickly learned there's people who have been living there for hundreds of years and doing it successfully. You know, we need to take advantage of the wonderful human resources around us and ask for help. And as a missionary, sometimes that's the hardest thing to do because you're prepared to go and share the gospel to save these people and yet to humble yourself and say, I need your help. I don't know how to do life here. Can you teach me how to do life? So this is, I see a parallel here because you are there to teach them the great truths of salvation. But missionaries often describe how they don't know the language, but little yes. children do. Yeah how they don't know how to operate in that culture, as you were saying, but little children do. So going back to that childish or childlike experience of not knowing how to navigate the basic things mm -hmm. is immediately reverted in my mind to what Jesus says, that you need to be like little children. That's so right. that's the experience, the humbling experience of missionaries who have so much that they have dedicated their lives to share Mm -hmm. And yet the first phase of that sharing is not sharing anything. It's just <laughs> listening and watching right. and learning, learning. And, and absorbing how they do yeah. the things that they do yeah. in order to communicate that properly. But ironically, in asking for help, the people who helped us became our disciples. Mm. You know, it, it, it laid the foundation for relationship and friendship um, you know, Jesus method where you're mingling with people, having conversations, getting to know people, living life together, and then being able to plant seeds of truth. Um, and so were I to be called back into the mission field again, I don't think I'd change anything, to be honest with you. I mean, I wouldn't wish for Greg or anybody to get sick, but, but apart from the you sickness. Know, certainly going with that 
that humble attitude, asking for help and, and allowing people, being humble enough to, to accept mm. the help. Brené Brown is a famous researcher on vulnerability and shame. Mm. And she says that the result of vulnerability is connection. In fact, she goes as far as saying that there is no human connection without vulnerability. Mm. So that initial vulnerability that the missionary goes through is perhaps God's tool to build the connections necessary to communicate the gospel with right. people there. Right. That's, that's fascinating. Yeah. So you mentioned that Greg had got a visa to teach English as a mm -hmm. second language. Mm -hmm. Is that what he did throughout the period as a missionary, as his day job? Was that his, his job throughout the period or did it change? And what did you do, Amy? So yes, he continued to teach English, but after being there a couple of years, the union approached us and said, look, our students, our Adventist students don't have the English that they need to go to the university in Thailand. Would you be willing to open an English language school? Because a lot and, of the schools- Just to clarify for some of our readers, some of our, not our readers, some of our viewers and listeners um, who won't be familiar with Adventist jargon, we mean the Southeast Asia Union mission here. We don't mean Correct. a trade union, a labor union. Right. We mean the Southeast Asia Union approached Greg to start an Adventist language school. Correct. Because there was a, a challenge with classes being held on Saturday, on Sabbath, or exams being given. And so there was the Sabbath challenge. Mm. But then they said, we've got enough students who actually need to be discipled as well. And so we approached our organization and said, would you consider supporting us to start a language school? And they did. We, we started a language school called Gold, Gold English Institute, um, and we discipled so many students through that. And it became a blessing because the English teaching sector was one of the sectors that the government allowed foreigners to come and, and get visas for. And so it allowed us to bring in more missionaries. It allowed us to bring in student missionaries. And let me tell you, the value of student missionaries is beyond measure. Mm. We had so many young people discipled by our student missionaries that we couldn't have reached because we have children, we have families. And, you know, at the end of the day, you go home and you're with your family. We're the student missionaries. At the end of the day, what do you do? You go out with your friends. Who are your friends? Your, your students, you know. And so through that friendship, they were able to bring people to the church and the government allowed us to to give Bible studies and have spiritual conversations on the Okay, on so the, that was that you didn't have to hide that. Well, we had to be careful in the school, but we could be very open about it in the church. Right. And so we, we had different programs happen at the church. And so students would ask the, the student missionaries, well, what are you doing Friday night? Let's go do something. And like, well, we've got a program that we're involved in. You should come along. And that's how they would get in, hmm. coming to a Friday night Vespers and participating in the music and the fellowship. And Often people juxtapose long-term missions hmm. and student missionaries and short-term missions as opposing each other. What you're describing is they can very well complement each other in reaching a particular group. Absolutely. When they work together, when they're integrated, what you have is, is a tremendously powerful um, ministry. Yeah, and we did have some people who came as a sh on short-term trips to come and support the school, You know, especially when we were renovating the building. We had a group come and help us painting and all kinds of things. And another another couple guys came and helped us set up the IT system because we mm. had the online component. And um, yeah, so absolutely short term, um, you know, student mission, long term career missionaries that they all have their place. Because you were there for in, in last for 10 years, right? Yes. Yeah. And but you also valued the people who came in on short term 
student missions and also people who just came on mission trips. Absolutely. They all have Absolutely. their role to play. Yes. Well, originally, we focused on cohorting at first, selling books, right, and then health, and then education. Mm -hmm. And I guess as a result of globalization, now we have English teaching or languages being yeah, taught. Yeah, in certain parts, parts of the world, it's a, world. it's a big thing, yeah. So yeah. that's another methodology of, of building connections and helping to to advance people's lives and, and make it better. That's an interesting shift. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I wonder when we started teaching English as a mission opportunity. <laughs> that, that's an interesting question. That's, I don't know the answer to that. It would be good to find out. Amy, what did you do in Laos? Did you just support Greg or did you have a job as well? Um, I was primarily a stay-at-home mom. Our children were five months old and three years old when we went. So you had a five-month-old when you moved to when Laos. Went, My yeah. goodness, that's a go. huge yeah. challenge. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, my role, we were, we were blessed that I could stay home and raise the kids. Um, but at the same time, I was called to be a missionary too. <laughs> and I remember crying, oh, you know, if I didn't have these kids, I could be a missionary. <laughs> you you know. felt the call since you were five. Right, exactly. And here I am stuck at home. Now, I never resented my children. I'm extremely grateful and thankful for the blessing to have them. So I wouldn't change that. But I just remember feeling frustrated that I'm stuck in the routine of childcare and not able to spend full time in language learning, full time in learning the culture, full time in, in just engaging with people. But as the boys got older, I was able to get more and more involved, especially with the church. There is a, an established church there, but it was young and it was weak. Um, and as a nurse, I was able to practice I think I was more doctoring than I was nursing because mm. I was diagnosing and prescribing and treating. Right, because um, there was a shortage of doctors, presumably. There's, well, a shortage of good education. You mm. know, there were doctors who were there who had got, been educated in Japan or Thailand or other places and had come back, but not a lot of them. And the local, I was actually tutoring a young man through medical school, and he brought me his textbook, which was a photocopy of a photocopy of a oh, textbook. Goodness. You know, and when you're dealing with diagrams and photos, those don't copy. No. And so, you know, it's just this black box. Well, what's the, what's the black box supposed to be? You know, and if you have a physician who's being trained that way, the, the education is not that wonderful. No, and so they were not. excellent at doing broken bones, you know, setting broken bones and doing stitches and that sort of thing. But when it came to internal medicine, I actually had more training than they did. As a nurse. As a nurse. And so um, I worked primarily through the church. Uh, after church, the health ministries director and I, who, he was just a layperson. Um, he and I would run a, a little clinic after church and just pray with people, treat them as we could. Uh, would go out into the villages as we were able and visit and, and treat people as well. About how many church members did you have in Laos when you arrived there? You know, that's a good question. And I don't know the exact number, but it was not many at all. I think it was less than a thousand when we went. There was no ordained pastor. Really? So no Greg was the pastor. only one? He wasn't ordained he at that time. He wasn't ordained at the time. So. There were trained pastors, but they were not ordained. And um, while we were there, the first one was ordained. And then now they have... I don't know, maybe 30 or 40 ordained pastors, maybe more. Wow. And a lot of them came through our school or were somehow impacted and discipled and mentored because through of our school. school being there. How does Great it job. feel to start the work like this in a, in a new country? You know what? It's humbling. It's really humbling. We weren't the first missionary there. Sure. You know, there were, there were missionaries there before the, the war, before the Vietnam War, but we were the first foreign missionaries other than ADRA to be there specifically for church planting mission work. 
since the war in the 70s. And, wow, and to so that's think a long back, time. Mm -hmm, to think back and to look at what's happening in the church now, I think probably the, the, the president of the church there is probably the youngest one in the world, you know, in our world church. He's in his 30s, mm -hmm. you know. Very young church, and it's 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 exciting. It's it's an honor. Sometimes we get the idea that the experience you had to be one of the first missionaries to a new field, a new country, is something that is no longer possible because we're already everywhere in the world. So there's no need for missionaries like this. Mm. But this couldn't be further from the truth. Right. There are still plenty of places Absolutely. in the world that that we need missionaries like this. So I, I, we usually do this in the end, but if there is a young person listening to this who's thinking, I want to take on that difficult job because what mm -hmm. you described is not just difficult, it's hard, it's close to impossible yeah. to dedicate yourself through and, and risk sickness and death in order to take the, the good news of salvation to a new land. If there are people listening to this that are called by God to do that, how would you encourage them? Do it. <laughs> <laughs> not everybody feels the call to mission and this is yes. this is how we were what we were told because when we were in seminary we were sponsored and so the church that was sponsoring us expected us to come back of course so we had to talk to them and say how are we going to manage this because we feel called and the the president at that time i remember looked at us and had tears in his eyes and he said if you're if you're feeling called you need to go we said, well, you should be ex encouraging us not to go. You know, you're losing an employee. And he said, my wife and I always wanted to go, mm. but never did. What a great story. And he said, if you're feeling called, you, you need to go. We will release you to go. And he did. And that's the right response. We Absolutely. would like to see that from every church administrator. Absolutely. Instead of, no, my territory is the most yeah. important in the world. No, God is calling you to go. Go. Well, yeah. and, and Ellen White also has a quote, and I wish I knew exactly where it was, but she talks about the reflex influence That's of foreign right. mission. That if we get involved in foreign mission, that we will, we, there's a, a reflex influence on our local churches and that we will, we will be blessed as a result. Well, that's right. Ellen White says that and... I believe that's true. And we've seen it, we've talked about it. We've talked about many it in episodes. the history we've talked about, yeah. After a decade, which is not trivial, it's a decade in Laos. It sounds big when you call it a decade right? and not it's, 10 years. It's but a yes. decade. You don't go back to the US, you don't no. go back home. No. Uh, at this point, no one is certain where home is exactly. Correct, it's where the suitcase is, wherever there you it has to be. And you go to Bangkok, you go to Thailand. Yes. What was that like? Yeah. You know, Thailand and Laos are very similar culturally. Um, the language is very close. In fact, it may even be closer than Portuguese and Spanish. Hmm. However, the difference between Vang Chun and Bangkok are night and day. Hmm. Now, Vang Chun was very rural. When we went there, there was one traffic light in the whole city. Most of the roads were not That's paved. That's the capital. That's the capital city. Yeah. That's not like Bangkok. No. And, and I remember while we were there, you know, a couple of years after we were there, they, they opened up a new hotel on the, on the bank of the Mekong River. It was 13 stories. Like, this is a huge, we've got a skyscraper, you know. <laughs> Whereas in Bangkok, you know. There are real skyscrapers. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, and, and very modern. You know, some of the malls in Bangkok far outshine any mall that you could, you could see here in the States. Um, a lot of wealth, but a lot of very, very poor people as well. So it's a big mix. 
Um, but I'm a country girl. I grew up in New England, mm. you know, a very country rural area. And to go to the big city was, that was difficult. It was difficult. So there was a culture shock going from Laos to Thailand as well. So there was culture shock even with that move, right? Mm -hmm. Not now, as drastic. You were now, when you moved to Thailand, you were working directly for the Seventh-day Adventist Church as opposed to one of its supporting ministries. And you worked as an official church missionary for five years. Why did you make that move to Thailand and take on those different responsibilities? Um, God. <laughs> so we were approached by Global Mission who needed a new director for uh, what was then the Buddhist Study Center. And they- It is now the center of East, East Asian, Asian religions correct, and traditions. Correct. So they approached Greg and said, would you be willing to submit your CV? And he said, no, I'm happy doing what we're doing. We were transitioning <laughs> to a supervision, supervisory role uh, with the supporting ministry where we would be helping other projects in Southeast Asia. And we were quite happy with that. And uh, so he turned it down. No, you know, we're happy what we're doing. And then a little while later, another email. Would you please submit your CV? We've talked to your, your employer and they're happy to, you know, reluctantly allowing you to. And so Greg said, fine, I reluctantly give you my CV. And, <laughs> you know, but don't pick us. And, and they, the response was, well, would you at least pray about it? Well, what missionary would say, no, we're not going to pray about it. Yes, of course, we'll pray about it. Um, but you knew what answer you wanted from God. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, and, and we had made it clear we're not interested. You know, we, this is not, we're not qualified for that position. Didn't feel qualified. The committee chose us. And I'll tell you what, the feeling, that sinking gut feeling when you get the email saying, congratulations. I know mm. that's not the news we want, you know. Um, and so we, we just trusted that this was God's, God's leading because we had been praying about it, that God would lead. And we moved to Bangkok and directed the center there. We actually lived in Thailand for six years before we came back and moved back for family reasons. Our children were adjusting back. You know, they had been six years and uh, six months, five months and three years old. And now, you know, 15, 16 years later, they're ready to transition back. And our youngest was struggling. He was having a hard time um, because over there he was American. Everything he did, they, they considered was American. But mm. when he came back, he realized it he's actually American. wasn't American. So <laughs> no. he wasn't Thai. He wasn't Lao. He's not American. Who is he? What is he? Yes. Right. And so and this just, is a challenge that faces many missionaries. Yes. Kids. It's called third culture kid where you don't belong to either culture. You're, you're a mix. Um, and we've got this great illustration that we use where for the adults, it's like mixing blue and yellow beads together. You know, it just becomes a mix of blue and yellow beads and you can separate it out. But with children, you take blue and yellow Play-Doh or green. clay and it becomes green. It's something completely different. That's a great um, illustration. Yeah. What did you and Greg actually do in Thailand? What did Greg do as director of the study center? And what did you do? Because now your children didn't require homeschooling right. so much. And so were you able to move finally into the ministry that you'd been hoping for? I was able to move into a ministry, not the one that I dreamt of, of medical missionary work, but I was able, um, you know, as a, a GC-employed missionary, Greg's spouse was guaranteed a position of some kind. Um, and so the first year it was homeschooling our kids, but then once we put them in the local church school, then I was freed up and I was able to work alongside him. So my the first year I was employed was more of a secretarial role because the children were still living at home. 
But then when they moved to the States to go to boarding school, then I was able to travel more and um, was blessed to be asked to be the associate director of the center. And so we traveled um, training people, counseling, coaching, mentoring church planters and pastors and churches how to do Buddhist ministry because Buddhists are, can be difficult to reach. Um, yes. Not impossible, but difficult. And if you know how to do it, you can do it. And so what ends up happening is that Buddhists tend to be mixed in with um, animist peoples. Now, a lot of the hill tribes are animist. Uh, and so, and they're easier to reach. And so our church, that? I think it's multiple reasons, but I think with animism, you're focused more on fear and power. Hmm. And when you can demonstrate that God is more powerful than the spirits, right. then we're going to follow God. Um, whereas with Buddhism, it's more... Ex uh, eclectic. You do what works for you. Mm. And so it's not unusual to go from village to village and the flavor of Buddhism is a little bit different because it's it's a hybrid of Buddhism and whatever the local animistic practices are. So it's not uncommon to go to Buddhist majority countries and find that the church majority is not Buddhist. Buddhist background, their animist background or or something else background, a Christian, right. Christian background. And the majority of members in Thailand are not Thai speaking, they're not ethnically Thai, right? They're actually from the hill tribes. Right, correct. What correct. did the center do, the, the Center for East Asian Religions at that time? What, so we did, what a, did lot of, a lot of publishing, creating resources, so books and tracts and, and trainings, primarily trainings on how to apply Christ's method in a Buddhist context. Because often when we think about evangelism and outreach, we're thinking Bible study. But there's a lot that has to happen before a Bible study. Even, even in Western yes. yep. Christianized countries, you still have to have the friendship component. But for a Buddhist, you need a component in between the friendship and the, the Bible study, which is where they have to have an, an encounter with God. Because in Buddhism, there's every, anybody who dies can be a God, right? And, and there's multiple heavens. So when we talk about God in heaven, they're like, okay, which God, which heaven? Mm. So, and, and gods in their system are not, they're not really interested in humans. They'll get involved, but it's not like they're really that, in, they're disinterested. So there's a very fundamental different worldview. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'll never forget Greg telling the story of the believer, the church member who said to him, you know, pastor, I love the church so much. I love being an Adventist. I love Jesus. I love being a Christian. I love it so much. I want to be a Christian in my next life. That's right. So that, that's right. That just shows the the powerful difference of worldview. That even yes. though she's a, a church member and, and and loves it, she's still thinking in terms of reincarnation. But those roots are still really deep. Yeah. And so having that extra step of they need to have a personal encounter with God. You know, Paul Hebert talks about different encounters: the power encounter and truth encounter, and these things. And what we've realized is that they need any or all of those. Um, and if you, if you think about it in the Bible, there's many people in the Bible who had these encounters. You know, I think of um, yeah. even Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, how many personal encounters did he have with God before it really turned, changed his heart, you know? And so helping people, helping the missionary, helping the local global mission pioneer and pastor recognize that we can't, it, it's premature to go into Bible studies and tell them about Jesus before they know who this God is. Mm. And in their system, when a god or a deity does something for you, you have to reciprocate. It's in the shame-honor system, and it's, it's the patron-client relationship. 
And so when you have somebody who does something for you that you couldn't do for yourself, you are indebted to them in whatever terms. That's the story of the gospel. Exactly. In and, many ways. you know, whatever terms those might be with your patron. And so we've established, we, we wrote some curriculum that runs that as the theme through the Bible, that God is our patron. And we've, we've intentionally forgotten our relationship with our patron. And so the, the message of the gospel is to restore that right relationship with God as our patron and we are his client. That's but he's not just a patron, he's a, he's a father patron. Right. Uh, which has a double, double power to it because, you know, parents, there's the saying, you can never repay your mother's milk. Mm -hmm. mm. You know, even if your mother, if all she did was give birth to you and then got up and walked away, you could not repay your mother for giving you life. So there's a double, it's your patron. Correct. But also your father. So if you, your rejection your parents, of that yeah. is, is, is yeah. a double rejection. Right. And That's so helping them to see that and then knowing what the response is to be. And we've told them it's three things. One, you need to say thank you. Dear Jesus, thank you for, amen. Mm -hmm. Second, tell other people what he did for you. And third, he wants you to learn about him. Would you like to learn about him? Mm. And then we dive into Bible stories about Jesus because Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Yes. And so his, right. God's character is revealed in the person of Jesus. And so sharing stories of Jesus' compassion, Jesus' love, his moral teachings. Um, and they see Jesus as having, providing a better option than what they're currently living with. And that opens them up to deeper Bible studies and, and, and a love relationship with God. In many ways, the shame-honor culture that is prevalent in many Asian countries is the same that you had for the writers of the Bible. Yes. So if we can manage to remove much of the Western constructions mm. that have been made over the last many centuries, especially yeah. Protestant yeah. ones, then, then maybe we have a better chance at communicating that properly. Yeah. Because... Yeah. We, in the after the 800s, 900s, there was an obsession with Christianity for how to avoid hell. Mm -hmm. In fact, that was the main theme of the Middle Ages, of the Dark Ages, was how can I avoid hell? And then Protestants came, and the question became, therefore, how can I be saved? Mm -hmm. And so you have a thousand years of Western thought that are built on those two fundamental questions. Right. How can I avoid hell? What is it that I need to do to avoid it? And then what is it that I need to do to be saved in the Catholic and, and Protestant traditions? Mm -hmm. And that adds lots of layers that were not there in the same way in the first century right. where the right. shame on our society is there. Right. So as you described it, what you, you know, the, the, the premises of, of what you described is removing much of that extra layers of those extra layers and going back to a more fundamental uh, relational family basis mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for accepting and experiencing God. You've moved from doing this to Asian religions. Now you've transitioned to the Institute of World Mission mm -hmm. that helps missionaries understand all of this <laughs> to the whole world. How is that trans transition? Um, the transition has been difficult and easy all at the same time. Mm. You know, it depends on what you're talking about. So um, I really do appreciate being with the Institute. I've thought that of all the other departments in the General Conference, Institute is where I would love to serve, and I'm, I'm blessed to be there. And how did you come to make that transition from Bangkok and Thailand, the, the Global Mission Center, yeah. to working at the church headquarters and the Institute for World Mission? How did that happen? So after six years in Thailand with the center, um, 
our children were moving back, our youngest was struggling with his transition, and we realized that our first and foremost call is, is to our children. That's right. And so we, we made the decision that we would move back. We knew that the center needed to stay in Asia, and so we wrote a resignation letter to Gary Krause, the director of Adventist Mission, and said, you know, we're really sorry, we love what we're doing, but our children have to come first, and so we are resigning to move back to the States to help our children. And at that time, he said, we'd like you not to leave, would would you be willing to work for the center, but from the states, temporarily? You know, until until we find a new director for the center, or until you feel that you can go back. Praise God, we can do what we still love. You know, Clever still Gary. right, <laughs> right. Gary's been on the show. So yeah, so and Gary and Homer and Rick McEdward was part of you know. So there's a number of people involved. Um, so we were able to move back with the center, continue the work that we were doing, and then COVID hit. And we, we were able to finish up some of the resources we were working on because we were no longer traveling around the world, um, able to connect with people still through Zoom. You travel, you mentioned traveling around the world, and that presumably is because Buddhists are not only found in Thailand, there are Buddhists around the world. So you did right. training not only in Thailand, but right. where you were based, but you also did it in other countries That's as well. Right. That's right. Mostly the Asian countries, but also Russia. There are some, mm. um, some Mongolian Mongol people who had moved up into Russia many, many years ago, uh, hundreds of years ago, but who are still holding on to their, their Buddhist ways and traditions because to be Thai is to be Buddhist. To be Mongolian is to be Buddhist. Mm. And so to keep their heritage and be distinct from the, the Russians around them, they're also holding on to their religion. Um, and it, there's three main groups there. And so we were working with the church in Russia to start urban centers of influence and church planting projects to reach. We were working on two of the three groups and, and hoping to start on the third, but then transitioned. And the transition happened because um, they needed a new global mission centers director and asked Greg to take that position. And then I was offered a position at Institute of World Mission at the same time. So right. our shift happened at the same no. time. You and Greg went with a supporting missionary. Had you gone through training with IWM at any point? We did, actually. Um, when we went through the training with the, the supporting ministry, their training was three months. It was a whole summer long. And three weeks of that training was actually Mission Institute with Institute. So we did it in 2001 before we went to Asia. And then, of course, when we came and worked with the General Conference, then we went through it again in 2012. Right. And how was it for you and Greg? The first time, I didn't get a lot from it because I was pregnant and very sick. Right. <laughs> Fair enough. But what I did take from that was that it has an impact on the family and that our children would be impacted and that we had to be careful how we, how we included them and how we transitioned them and all of that. So that was incredibly helpful for me, just understanding the, the impact on the family. Going through it the second time, was really nice because it, it allowed me an opportunity or allowed us an opportunity to kind of make sense of some of the things that had happened in our mission experience. And just in a way, it was a, a way of debriefing and affirming our experiences that we had had. Um, and again, just being reminded of the, the challenge that mission is. And the other wonderful thing is that we found our people. <laughs> I didn't realize, I thought that we would go to the mission field for 12 to 15 to 20 years and come back and pastor. 
didn't realize how much mission changes who you are uh -huh. and how you think and how right. you respond to the world and, and relate to the world. I think and, that's a very important point, Amy. Yeah. So coming back and meeting other missionaries, it's like, we can talk and they get it, you know, and my family understands a lot. They came and visited multiple times. And so, you know, they understand what the market was like and the language is different and all that, but they don't really get it a hundred percent. You know, they're 90, 95% they get it. But when you talk with other missionaries, they get it. They really get it. And so to meet our people, <laughs> mm. you know, to meet our tribe and, and to develop a network of people who understand what we're going through and can relate to is really a wonderful thing. And to define and help to form a new generation of missionaries that are just starting out and going. Yes. If yes. somebody wants to become a missionary and they God is calling them to a particular place mm -hmm. and they're going through, it's, it's likely at some point they will come to the Mission Institute. Tell us what that is, what is the experience like um, for those three weeks, mm -hmm. and what impact has it had in different missionaries? So Mission Institute is a three-week program, training, rather intensive actually, um, where we spend all day, we're, we're discussing different things. How do you deal with the transition that your family's experiencing? What are your children going through and how can you help them? Um, what are some of the experiences that you're going to have and how can you manage with that? We also talk a lot about cross-cultural communication. Um, you know, there's so many inferences, so many uh, expectations that we have that we don't even think about that are implied. So how do you deal with those expectations that are different that you don't even know about? And how do you resolve conflict when there is conflict? So just thinking more cross-culturally. Um, we also talk about, you know, the realities of church planting and Adventist mission history and how are we fitting in and this new mission focus that we're experiencing now where we're refocusing again mm. on how we do mission and who we do mission and who does mission. You know, it used to be from the West to the rest and now it's from everywhere to everywhere. You know, and so how do we deal with that reality as well, where we're dealing with a, a very global church, even in a local setting? Um, you know, how do you deal with immigrants who are coming to the local church? How do you deal with foreigners who are coming for, you know, um, economic immigrants who are coming and working in the area? And how do, you how do you form a multicultural church that's healthy and growing and thriving? I, I love the Mission Institute for those three weeks, and it it's not just a period that you spend there, it reshapes you to continue thinking in those yeah. terms. Yeah. And as it happened, a couple of weeks ago, I was approached by one of our independent contractors we have in the communications department, about 140 mm -hmm. independent mm -hmm. contractors that work with us on the various projects we have. And one of them is from Okinawa. Mm. And he was telling me, and it was a very interesting conversation, he's been in the team for about two, three years, and he said, I'm really thinking of becoming an Adventist, but I don't think that's possible. Hmm. I'm like, why? Because I don't want to stop being from Okinawa. I said, yeah. you know, and what do you mean by that? <laughs> well, you know, it's part of who I am that we right. talk to the ancestors and, yes, and we talk. to religion. And, and so I, I, you know, we went through that process and I remember the mission, and the, the mission institute for those weeks and, and how to think through how to redefine not to redefine someone's identity, but for them to see that their, um, what their identity is based in the gospel. So mm -hmm. the, the conclusion was really interesting. I said, well, when you talk about the spirit of the ancestors, 
I don't think you believe that you receive this entity inside of you that will now speak through you. I don't think that's what you believe because most don't. They know right. that it's... Right. So I think that right at the beginning of your tradition, we talked about the spirit of, of, of the ancestors, much like we say, it's the spirit of the game or it's the spirit of, of something. Yeah. And later, that became, that, that met metaphor became a metaphysical implication that there were mm. such things as spirit of the mm. ancestors. And what you need to do is not reject your tradition, is that you need to go all the way to the beginning. So don't, don't stop halfway through in the metaphysical sense. Go back to the metaphor right at the beginning. Mm -hmm. So don't mm -hmm. ignore the tradition of the Okinawans but go to where it started, go even deeper mm -hmm. into it. Mm -hmm. And that was the beginning of the process. But that struggle of what does it mean that I'll become a Seventh-day Adventist? Does that mean I'm no longer, yes. you know, deeply rooted to this? Right, exactly. Right? Because the exactly. identity and the religion and the tradition, yeah. it's all, you know, molded into one. Yeah, here in the West, we like to separate and divide. But there it's not, in Asia especially. Well, that's my experience, you know. Asia, it's to be Thai is to be Buddhist, to be, yeah. you know, to be Japanese is to be Shinto, you know, and, and to relate to your ancestors. And part of that's the shame on our culture as well. Mm -hmm. You know, they're the patrons. Um, but going back to Mission Institute, something that makes us very unique is that we also have a Mission Institute for the children. Yes. Mm -hmm. We have a program for the teens that's helping the teens to understand the, the challenges of moving to a new culture and then maybe being sent back home for school and... And how do, you, how do you navigate all of that? How do you say your goodbyes? And it's interesting with teenagers, some parents are really great at helping their children be part of the decision making, but some, some young people can become bitter about it. You know, yes. My parents uprooted me and took me away and I don't want to have anything to do with it. And that impacts how they see God because who's calling the parents? God is. God is calling them through the church. And so then they become bitter against God. They become bitter against the church. And so it's really crucial that we help the young people right. find their mission in the calling as well. But then we have programs for the, the children as well, elementary school age children, to help them learn about friendships and that it's okay to be sad that you're missing your best friend at home and you're missing your bike and you're missing your pet. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there's something new happening and, you know, it'll be okay. And again, the friendship core. And then we also offer a daycare for the babies and toddlers so that mom can be involved. Um, she can be part of the, the Mission Institute for the adults and, and learn as well because we're called as a family. You know, there may be one person who's specifically called to a specific role, but right. it's the whole family the whole that's family. called that's and right. that's impacted. And that was true all the way back in 1874 when J.N. Andrews went with his children, Charles and Mary. That's right. So it's still true today. Amy, we could talk, I think, for, for hours about this, about you're doing important work in the Institute of World Mission. We thank you for coming on the show, and we hope that all continues to go well and that God blesses you in your ministry with IWM. Thank you. Thank you, Amy. Thank you. <laughs> Well, thank you too. You've been watching us and listening to us. Thanks for joining us in this episode of Mission 150. Please keep watching on AdventistReview.tv on the Seventh-day Adventist Church's YouTube channel or listening on your favorite podcast platform. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends. If you want to know more about Adventist missionary work and missionaries today, go to AdventistMission.org. That's AdventistMission.org. And if you want to find more mission opportunities today that you can go to, maybe around your home, well, at least where you live, 
visit vividfaith.com, vividfaith.com. We'll be back next week with more on the inspiring history of Adventist mission around the world.